Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. Talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not? And why is it important? Uh, why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. And I have a returning guest. I think it might be his fourth time, but he's got a lot to say. David Olney is an associate lecturer, University of Adelaide. He's on a board called the Politics and International Relations, like his board or organization called Polier, P-O-L-I-R. No, it's not a well-conceived acronym. What I what I found in talking to David is that he's just, uh, you know, he, he's blind, so he can't see. But I think his other abilities have really risen and, you know, gotten uh, very strong. And one of those abilities is seeing things in a very unusual way, in a very informative way that most people won't think about. So I wanted to talk to him today about the, you know, the COVID situation worldwide, because I just, I just know he's going to have some super interesting insights. So Dave, thanks for coming again. Thank you for inviting me back. And thank you listeners for listening. Yeah. And again, you're in Australia, so you'd have a very interesting perspective, but t take me through, um, the beginning of COVID, what's, what did you hear and what did you experience and what were your thoughts initially, like, you know, January, February, March last year, and then how did they evolve? It was very interesting being in Australia in the early period because, of course, we have an enormous number normally of Chinese students at our university. And as people started talking about COVID, what became clear to me as someone teaching in a university is if we don't make decisions about this globally soon, work out what it is, work out if it's really dangerous, work out if we're going to lock down, we are going to get tens of thousands of teenagers from China arrive back here in late February to start university in the first week of March, which is the beginning of our university year. And we are going to be one of the epicenter countries of COVID, whatever it is. So what was really interesting is I think this must have been fairly effectively briefed to our senior politicians in Canberra because we went literally straight from watching it from a distance going look we're watching we're paying attention to closed borders no one comes in no one goes out and locking most of our cities down for six weeks literally overnight in mid-February uh, so to put it in perspective I'd been in Canberra the week before and everyone was wondering when it was going to happen and then just bang the next week you know, literally, I think it was literally on a Wednesday, everything changed. So Tuesday, the world's normal. Wednesday, it's radically different. On top of dodging that bullet, though, we had some major cruise ships come into Sydney. So the very big, beautiful city on our east coast, where COVID was probably already loose. You know, ship's crew had no ability to test yet. 
and they let a thousand passengers wander around Sydney for three days. And that was really our first big outbreak is that from that, it got, got loose in Sydney and it got loose all over Sydney. So in the combination of having just gone into lockdown, we also had a city where despite having apparently jumped early, it was everywhere. So we had the interesting thing of shutting Australia down, but also watching a city where it got loose and then having that repeated in Melbourne later. Melbourne got a second wave, ended up under lockdown for, I think, 108 days. You know, a very serious why, lockdown. In the beginning, people, uh, you know, the experts were saying two weeks to flatten the curve. Why, why does it turn into 100 days, 200 days, 300 days for some countries? I think the problem we've had everywhere, and you can see, Really, the biggest thing about COVID to me seems to be how our population do or don't take instructions is the difference between things going well and things going very badly. So the whole thing of mask wearing, we can see that some countries say that everyone should wear a mask and the infection rate just keeps going through the roof. And then I'll ask people to go, okay, describe to me photos of how people are wearing their masks. Oh, they're not covering their nose. Or they're taking it on and off every time they talk to everyone. Or they're constantly touching their mask in their face, which means every time they touch a surface in the environment and touch their mask, they're literally reinfecting themselves with whatever was on that surface. So I think what we see very much is populations who can follow rules and decide they are going to follow the rules for the public good get on top of this fairly well. So, for example, I think for the last three days in Australia, there have been no COVID cases, no new cases other than return travellers who are in medical quarantine in medical hotels. So we're willing to take orders. We're willing to learn to put a mask on and off properly. We're willing to work from home. We had the advantage of having a digital economy where a huge number of Australians could work from home. So for most Australians, the problem has been less, can they work from home, than is there enough bandwidth for them to work from home and their children to study successfully from home? Okay. I mean, do you think that COVID is going to magically go away? I mean, it's not that there's not going to be zero cases. I would think by this point, it's going to be a part no, of populations the, forever. So what do they do? See, this is the fascinating thing. Like even this morning when I turned the news on just to listen to the how many new cases in the country for the day, what they were saying was two outer regions of Melbourne that found fragments of uh, the virus in wastewater, so in sewage treatment plants, meaning people, please, if you have symptoms, go and get tested straight away. So that it's just a question of you getting tested rather than the Victorian government locking down whole suburbs. I think the thing here is Australia is quite an old population. You know, we have a lot of people over 60. And like the US, we have a lot of people who are chronically ill. So you put that combo together and they're the two groups where COVID is going to cause the most damage. So when it appears again in an outer suburb, what you go is, oh, it's probably in kids, teenagers, people in their 20s who are going to end up asymptomatic or at best have a sniffling nose for a day. So this is going to be with us in some way, shape or form, I would guess, forever. And it's just a question of what is the rate at which we develop the next modified vaccine? And are people willing to go and get a COVID shot every year like they're willing to get a flu shot every year? I mean, it seems like a lot of nations are blaming their citizens now. Oh, you didn't you didn't do this enough. You didn't do that enough. I mean, and then they're going back to the same old tactics. Like, what, what do you think is going to happen from here? What, what do you think is going to be? You know, I know it's a future question, but. Yeah, I, want to talk about oh, I think this is the important thing. These future questions are really important. So on the citizen question, the reality is that most countries used to build citizens. School was about training people to conform enough to be manageable, to teach them basic public health, to teach them enough maths to fill in their tax return, to teach them enough about law and order that they probably stayed on the right side of the law. You know, In the 19th century, most countries were involved in the nation building process. If you are a you know, a country that was settled late and got its identity late, like Australia. Australia only became a country, went from being colonies to a country in 1901. So we did our nation building essentially from 1901. Well, we're still really in the process, but the really formative period is World War One, World War Two. If you are building citizens to build a nation, it's easy to teach public health conformity and all sorts of other things that are good in a crisis. I think what we're seeing now is how many countries have stopped building citizens. They barely teach public health. They barely teach conformity. The idea that everything is so good, it is fine for everyone to be the individual they want to be and behave exactly as they want 
has been normalized in so many societies as if what democracy means is that we all get to be as radically individualistic as we like. Now, that is one way to define what democracy is. All democracy is, is we get some say in how we're governed. We get to choose our representative. That's all it means. It doesn't mean it allows for libertarianism or radical individualism. It could be highly collectivist. So I think what we're going to see out of COVID is a debate again of, all right, governments have put things in place. In some countries, they've worked remarkably well and people have grumbled about having their liberty reduced. In other countries, governments have tried to put things in place and they have, you know, largely failed. So if we look at, you know, the United States today as we are recording, your infection rate is down to 70,000 cases a day. That is a massive improvement for it to be 70,000 cases a day. There's plenty of countries in the world that if it had been 70,000 cases a day, it would have caused a a cataclysm because they just do not have a medical system with enough personnel and equipment to deal with it. So you can survive that because of how much money has been invested, how much time has been invested, how many young people have been trained to be medical professionals. But if that had been allowed to happen in most countries, the medical system would have been overwhelmed and you literally, like Guatemala early in the epidemic, would have had bodies in the streets. I mean, the, you know, well, I guess there's, there's issues with testing and all that stuff too. I mean, so far as I know, the, the PCR test, they were running it at, uh, you know, like a very long time to get the uh, the numbers. And they've, I guess it was January 20th or so, they changed the test to go down to like a 30 cycles instead of 40 or 45 cycles. And that could be the sole reason why the infection rate is going way down because the test is appears to be running it uh, in a more valid way now. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. It could be. Look, we keep seeing that testing keeps changing. So the Chinese have now gone to an anal swab because they believe that is the best way to find viral fragment. Now imagine trying to sell trying to tell citizens uh, in a Western democracy that your COVID test will be an anal swab. Yeah, well, I mean, I heard they uh, they mistakenly or I don't know, <laughs> they anally swabbed a bunch of Biden's team, which I thought was hilarious. Okay, so they have concluded, even in democracies, that it perhaps is the best test. But the question is, will it be acceptable? Right, yeah, yeah. So I suppose this is a question, and this is something people don't talk about often enough. If countries are doing so well dealing with this or aren't doing so well with this, let's look at how much economic activity goes back to normal. So nearly every major product in the world that used to come from China is not turning up on time and not turning up in the numbers that were promised, meaning that as a consequence of having to try and work out how to turn these you know, millions of factories in China the hundreds of thousands of factories into something where people can go to work safely, production levels have crashed. So we can see even in a place with authoritarian control that simply says, we will tell you to be in your apartment building and that is where you will stay for the foreseeable future. Even there, where you have that ability to demand it and you have a security apparatus who will more than happily brutalize their own population to get compliance, you are still going to get major economic and social consequences. And probably more Chinese citizens have experienced brutal behavior in the last year because of COVID than they did normally if they weren't politically active. There's terrible footage from a few months ago when they realized they had people in Shanghai airport with COVID and locked thousands of people in a multi-story car park until they worked out what to do with them. Yeah, I've heard they welded people into their houses and if you leave, they'll They'll arrest you or kill you. I mean, just just insane, insane behaviors. Well, they had to control. Again, see, this is this is where we sort of move from. It's a virus into what are the political and economic implications? Well, the political implications of it emerging out of China and the CCP not managing it well 
We know the original doctor that put out warnings in Wuhan was taken in by the police and terrorised and later died of the virus. So for the CCP, this is an image issue as much as it's a pandemic. So for all governments at some level, this is an image issue. For the CCP, where their credibility is, they have pulled a billion people out of abject poverty and created an amazing economy and rebuilt China's status. This can make them look very bad. And they are running the line worldwide. Now, it didn't emerge in China. Look at these early cases in Europe. Could have emerged anywhere. And they will keep running this line until the world is stupid enough to believe it. So it's very much a politicised issue. And then there's the economic implication. China needs the workshops open again because it needs 7% growth per year to keep pulling people out of poverty. But for Western countries, we're going economic cataclysm straight ahead, economic cataclysm straight ahead. The economic cataclysm is only straight ahead if we continue running stupid economic policy. Well, what's okay? so what do you think is going to happen, again, politically, I would think the current politicians in power in any government, in any nation, they're going to, I don't know how they could be looked upon favorably. Maybe they are. I don't know. Do you think this, there's going to be a big changeover in politicians over this next year because of this? So what's your thought? Well, here in Australia, we've had a prime minister, Scott Morrison, who handled the bushfires, you know, 15 months ago, terribly. At the time COVID started, our prime minister had his lowest you know, opinion rating in his entire term. The way he's dealt with COVID has made him look like a hero. That's beginning to come an end to an end as he's starting to change policies and stop spending money. And now there's new other issues other than COVID as people are beginning to believe we're getting out of COVID gradually. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. That will then mean people reassess Scott Morrison again. But there are politicians in the world where this has either made or broken their career. I suppose the big thing I'd say about politics, and this is critical, is at the depth of those first lockdowns, at the depth of second lockdowns for cities and countries that went into the second one. If we look now, London's on its third lockdown. There's this thing of we can never go back to normal. We can never go back to normal. The media endlessly chatter. We can never return to normal. Well, the only people that are dumb enough to believe we can't return to normal are the media. The political elite want to... Do you think the political elite want, I mean, they're pushing what's called the Great Reset. I've heard that from many, many arenas. So do you think they want it to return to normal? They want to use this as a chance to change things in their way. The vast majority of conservative politicians' mission in life is to repeat yesterday and slightly improve it. They absolutely don't want a reset. The majority of progressive politicians want a radically different world. And we can see in the 20th century that progressive politicians tend to get an opportunity to govern about one third of the time. Because at the end of the day, humans are conservative. They like what they know. They like novel things like new technology, new food, new movies, new entertainment. They don't like new political systems, new ways of doing things. It's too confronting to our sense of confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance. So we've had endless rhetoric about the Great Reset. But I think if we resolve COVID to the point of getting near normal, Most politicians want to jump backwards as fast as they can because they were in a good position, they were doing well, and they were repeating what they did yesterday, which meant they believed they knew what they were doing. If things are to change, they actually need to take advice and improve the quality of their decision-making. And that means there's a risk to their careers, a risk to the system, a risk to their parties, and there's only a minority of progressive politicians in any country who are actually willing to deal with those kind of risks. So what do you see is happening this year, 2021, going forward? You know, I know it depends on the nation, but, you know, overall, yeah. what do you see let, as we march to the quarters? Let's assume we're jabbing people left, right and centre and that we're modifying the vaccinations fast enough to keep up with the virus changing, which most good virologists are saying is now possible, that we've got the breakthroughs necessary you know, to modify the vaccine in under six months to deal with new variants. So we're moving out of this. We've got a whole series of interesting problems have emerged. The digital divide has you know, shown itself to be more significant than ever before. Those who could work at home, their careers are still fine. Those who could study at home, it hasn't been as good as going to school, but they're doing okay. Those who couldn't work at home are often the ones who are in the most precarious jobs and their career has taken a hit or they're unemployed. 
children who didn't have high-speed broadband at home have fallen behind. You know, some teachers I know are basically saying that a lot of kids have lost a year of their life in terms of education. They learnt nothing in the last year. So what we see is that if you're in a developed country like Australia or the US, we're going to see the digital gap, the education gap, the career gap, the potential for employment for you know, teenagers just finishing school, the potential to do well at university, the potential to transcend from finishing university to go into the workplace. All these things, there is going to be a massive difference between those who are at the top group and those who are at the bottom group, which means we should be on the path to greater political instability because more people should be upset about the state of society. Well, I mean, you have the people that can work from home that work in tech, but I know like in Pakistan, in India, in a lot of countries, there's millions of day laborers. You know, if yeah. they don't work that day, they don't eat. And I know those people, I mean, I don't even know what's happened to those people. God knows how many have been killed by this, but uh, not the disease, but the lockdowns and the inability yeah. to work. What, and then we get into that whole other thing. People? Yeah, then we get into think of the developing world and India and Pakistan are great examples because so many people are day laborers. They don't earn, they don't eat that very day. We can watch with the way that India locked down it believed that it couldn't do enough to help them and it just decided to lock down and hope that by keeping people still, it could minimise the disaster and keep enough of its middle-class tech sector going that at the end of whatever happens with COVID, that they've still got a middle-class tech sector. So what you can see in some countries is they'll never admit it publicly, but what they really did was sacrifice you know, day workers, day labourers, to maintain their middle-class tech-based economy because at the end of this, you know, low-skill jobs can be done by anybody who's alive. More advanced jobs can only be done by people whose education and technology and everything else cost the state a fortune. And if you have to make the hard decision between people who represent a 10 to 20-year investment versus people who are replaceable, lots of countries have made very brutal decisions. I didn't realize the calculus would be like that. Do you think that was actually part of the decision-making thought process? I can't see how it couldn't have been. On the basis that countries like India and Pakistan have invested so much in education, so much in tech, so much in developing the infrastructure to support it, and are on now their second generation of educated people whose kids are now becoming that next generation of middle-class workers who rely on a broadband connection and working to a global market. If you lose them, you lose 20 years of investment. So you lock down to protect them. It's as simple as that, as brutal as that. And of course, you can never say that. But in, say, India, for example, where you've got the Hindu nationalists running the country, how do they explain if this adversely affected the Muslim population of India more? Because they're economically disenfranchised, which also meant they've been smashed, not just by the virus, but also potentially by not being able to earn and there not being enough support. So this is where, I mean, politicians don't want to move forward. But it's going to be a question of, do they get any choice? I mean, do you think that the, uh, you know, if there's such a cold-blooded calculation, why wouldn't India or Pakistan or whatever at some point say, you know what, uh, COVID doesn't seem to be nearly as bad as we thought. We're just going to open up because, you know, if, if people die, I think less people will die than the economic damage to our country. I mean, why wouldn't they make that calculation? Well, I think this is really what India and Pakistan have done. They've really said at a certain point, we can only lock down for this long. This has given those with enough resources time to decide, are they going to work from home? Are they going to buy masks? Are they going to sanitize everything? Are they going to order food to be delivered to their house each week by the grocers? You know, is the veggie person going to come past and they'll buy their veggies at the front gate in a mask and gloves? Is the person delivering dry goods going to come along with a truck and deliver their bundle? So I think really what this was about, and it will never be admitted because it can't be admitted because it's too high a cost, is that, you know, the middle class who are necessary to maintain links to the global economy, the education system, the medical system, the engineering system, to keep all the infrastructure running in countries. A lot of lockdowns were actually run to give that group time to get scared enough to switch on and do what will keep them alive and function. I mean, do you think that this was really calculated or was it a power grab by certain countries? Now that they saw, ooh, people are locking down, we have the chance to 
to take over and do whatever we want politically. If we watch, say, you know, India-China tensions, India-China have a line of control above the snow line on their border where they've made the rule that they don't carry or use firearms above that point because if they get in a firefight, it would literally cause massive avalanches and destroy villages, military bases on both sides. The Chinese have started multiple what basically look like medieval melees above the snow line with Indian troops trying to gain ground in the midst of COVID. Because I think the Chinese Communist Party genuinely believed they'd got their troops into lockdown early enough. And as a consequence of that, they would have an advantage over the Indians above the snow line. So the Chinese Communist Party arguing that the virus didn't start in China seems delusional when they have taken more strategic advantage of this to try and gain advantages over their neighbours where they believe their neighbours' militaries might be weak. I mean, for other countries, do you, well, I guess, first of all, for China, do you think it was a deliberate release or accidental? Do they plan this? And is it? Has I it think it was benefit? an accidental release, but far earlier than anyone thought. If I had to bet money from everything I've read, I would say that this thing emerged out of a wet market, as has been suggested, you know, wildlife too close together, people eating wildlife that really just don't eat it. The virus begins there. But there was interesting things last year, like at the time, well, actually now in 2019, in October 2019, when the kind of rioting and political protests in Hong Kong were huge, one of the really strange things was how many you know, Chinese paramilitary units and Chinese special forces units appeared to be confined to barracks. And security analysts were going, this just doesn't make sense. Why are they tolerating? stronger? Yeah. Why didn't they just roll across the Hong Kong border and smash the crowd? They would never tolerate protests like that in the mainland. So why were they tolerating in Hong Kong? And why all over China was there evidence that there were less paramilitary police and military on the streets? So what's been hypothesized by some security analysts is, well, you don't put that many million people in barracks unless there's something else you're more worried about. So you're oh, not so really they, that worried about uh, political yeah. uprising, that they may have already realized the virus was started, had no idea what it was going to be, but realized at some point they were going to have to control their entire population. And in order to do that, they needed to make sure that their paramilitary police and military were not infected. Because at that point, no one may have known how dangerous it was. So again, no one's been able to prove that point, but some very serious security analysts who go, well, just, you know, let's not speculate on stuff in labs we can't see. Let's talk about things we can see from satellite photos, like huge amounts of vehicles parked inside of bases rather on patrol for weeks on end. That's something we can have data on. So you think that it was accidentally released, but China, what was the thinking you think by the CCP? We can use this to you know get western nations to uh, you know to go crazy or what what do you think that they No, I think they were just going if, if this is as bad as it looks this breaks our economy this breaks our society and all the CCP cares about is maintaining control so every decision they make is to maintain control and to maintain control they need to maintain a minimum of a 7% economic growth rate because 7% in China is like 0% everywhere else because of the amount of infrastructure that has to be built and the billions well the millions of people they need to pull out of poverty so they would have taken really hard decisions about being prepared to use security forces again Wuhan is an interesting city it's a massive research and university city with lots of labs working on viruses so it is the most logical place for a virus to get loose out of a lab it's also full of wet markets like every other you know city in china where people are eating things they really shouldn't so you know the wet market thing fits well and it probably did come out of a wet market but coming up in wuhan where there are so many labs and there's so much research you know an oops in a lab is a far more likely thing. And when you are developing as fast as China, the faster you're developing, the more you're pushing the pace of technology, the more likely you are to have mistakes. And one slip from a lab of virus getting out is happened plenty of times in the world before with there being less pressure to move fast and work out what's going on. So again, other countries, I mean, like in the US, there's been a lot of talk of, oh, you know, the virus response was just to get Trump out of office. But you know, the whole world doesn't work based on the U.S., so far as I know. What explains to you, again, the different reactions that the different nations have had? And do you think that some of them are just copycatting, again, to get along to solidify the political power of those in power? Or, yeah, look, it's like, mainly copycat. 
it's it's mainly copycatting, but really two critical things end up, I think, being at the bottom of all of this. How willing are citizens to behave and how do we understand our economy working? Because how we understand our economy determines how much money we think we can spend. So countries like Australia and the UK and US, I think, all believe the same thing about their citizens. And that is that if we ask our citizens to wear masks, if we ask them to wash their hands a 100 times a day, if we ask them to wipe every surface down, if we ask them to not sit close to people, I think delusionally all three Anglo-Saxon countries, well, let's include Canada and New Zealand too, that citizens would behave. The evidence is that Australian and New Zealand citizens have been very willing to do what they were asked. Canadian citizens have been very willing to do what they asked. UK and American citizens, to a much higher degree, have done as they pleased and not followed instructions and probably contributed highly to an expanding infection rate. So that's thing number one, that depending on your your citizenry depends on what you can get them to do. The second thing is what kind of economy you have and how you understand your economy determines what's going to happen next. So in the case of Australia, UK, US, we use examples where everyone can follow the media in English. All three of these countries have gone economically into what is referred to as reactionary Keynesianism. When things are bad, the government spends money. This is the smartest thing you can do. The problem is, what do you do after? Well, no, actually, there's two problems. So if you understand money properly, and I suggest going and reading about modern monetary theory to all the listeners. So Stephanie Mm -hmm. Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, great place to start. All the money that's been spent to deal with COVID, as long as it is money you are spending in your currency, in your country, on resources, and people are willing to take that money and that gets things done, that money is just created. It just, it didn't exist. And then it was, you know, put into people's accounts. That is all you need to do to create money as a government. The problem is all three countries, Australia, the UK and the US, have neoliberal governments that believe, no, 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 if you want to spend money, you either have to tax it or borrow it. Right. Historically, all historical regimes understood that states create money because they have the power to. It is only when we went to the gold standard that people thought money was connected to something real. So we've got a case in Australia, where our treasurer has come out and said, if we spend any more money, we'll have to tax you more or we'll have to borrow more money. And Mm. I sit there wanting to smash myself in the forehead going, you are our treasurer and you don't understand that you can simply put new Australian dollars into accounts to pay for things in Australia. What is wrong with you? So, you know, in Congress at the moment, your Congress is arguing over a $1.9 trillion package where it's potentially new money to pay for things that all can be done in America with American resources. But unfortunately, they think it either has to be taxed or borrowed, which is not historically true. So we've got a political elite at the moment who, if they don't learn to understand economics, are going to cause monumental problems. Because the logical thing after reactionary Keynesianism, if you're a neoliberal politician, is to do exactly what happened after the global financial crisis. During the GFC, all the same governments did reactionary Keynesianism. They spent money. Then they all had a neoliberal freak out, thinking, we can't do that. We have to get it back. We have to tax it. We have to spend less. They put the UK and Australia in particular the US into a state of austerity, spent less and crippled the economy, made life worse for the very poor, made life worse for the lower middle class, made life worse for economic growth, made life worse for consumer spending. And in real terms, we were only just recovering from the GFC in 2019 because of the mishandling done during and after. And we're going to do potentially the same again here because we've got politicians who grew up with the same neoliberal economic ideas who will do reactionary Keynesianism during the crisis and then will return to delusional economic ideas after of not understanding that they could have just created money, spend it on useful things. And the only thing that they really needed to think about is how many real resources are there and do we need to manage inflation? Well, of course, Yes. You manage those two things, you're fine. So we have the thing, if we genuinely got changed now, so if you guys had ended up with Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders was probably going to put Stephanie Kelton in a very powerful economic position, and you would have dealt with COVID from the perspective this year of creating new money to pay for real resources to achieve public goods while managing inflation. And you wouldn't have had to have austerity. 
because you've got Joe Biden and you've got a Congress full of people on both sides who are neoliberal in the same way the British Parliament, the Australian Parliament are full on both sides of people who are neoliberal. We are all likely to be in austerity like after the GFC, which will create 10 years of economic disaster on top of the virus. Oh, so you think that's what's ahead? Is, uh, that's the most likely. So 10 yeah, years mean, of the kids who didn't get education because they couldn't afford broadband, continuing to not get an education because they couldn't afford broadband. 10 years of reducing government spending and reducing government support, meaning that people have less money, spend less money, so consumer spending crashes so the economy can't recover. 10 years of government spending less money. And the big thing you realize if you start understanding Keynesianism and modern monetary theory is when things are bad, you want the government spending brand new money to make things happen because that money then ends up in the private sector and makes the private sector go round. If the government don't spend or reduce their spending, there is almost no new money. And with no new money, there is no new spending. I mean, what about from industry? What about from you know the creation of new business and all that? the creation of money there, is that not significant enough? No, it's too small. So if we look historically, the biggest thing that kick-started the US economy was the New Deal in the 1930s and the industrial production of World War II and then constant defense spending in the Cold War. This delusional idea that economies grow from private activity. Private activity can only generate so much money. So if we look, any bank has to have a charter from the government of the country. That charter says how much money it can really make. So banks are allowed to make a tiny amount of new money every year by charging interest. If we look that relative to, say, the US government buying defense equipment, it's tiny. Just on that alone, private sector activity is small compared to the defense budget. And when things are bad, people get scared and they don't want to spend money. And as we've seen all over the world, handing out money during COVID to people who've lost their part-time jobs or are doing less hours, because that money's come in, yes, they've saved some, but they've spent far more during the sort of COVID period than they would have spent otherwise. So as sick as our economies look, they're infinitely better than they would have been because people have spent the majority of the money they were given. Now, if that money was borrowed, our governments are idiots. If that money was simply created and put into accounts, then that is new money in the economy that went to people's accounts. They spent it on food. They spent it on clothes. They spent it on education. They spent it on Netflix. They spent it on whatever. But guess what? They made the private economy keep going around during COVID, which is what government money is meant to do. So this this, is why, where did they do this successfully? In England, they... They did that. They paid people about 80% yep. of what they were making. Yep. The furlough in the UK worked really well. You guys had a version. We had JobKeeper and JobSeeker. The Canadians had their own version. The New Zealanders had a smaller version. So like I said, the irony is we've had neoliberal governments here doing reactionary Keynesianism, which is really good at the moment. But we'll at some point in the next few months, should, if the GFC is our normal example, get the neoliberal freakout moment where they go, oh, we now have to do austerity. We've got to recoup all that money. And if they have that delusional moment, they will give us 10 years of economic disaster on top of the virus. Well, in terms of uh, inflation, bankruptcies, things like that, I mean, at least in the US, when do you think that's going to start to kick in and happen? Well, if we go into austerity, we won't have inflation. So we will manage inflation the worst possible way we could by not having an economic sector doing anything. Okay. Now, there's no reason. We didn't get inflation after the GFC. Why would we get it now? Hmm. We haven't spent anywhere near enough money to cause inflationary problems, which should teach these neoliberal economists there's something wrong with your ideologically based economic models that did not exist between, you know, before 1945. They have no foundation in history. What, what do you think is going to be a tipping point for uh, austerity to set in, you know, in various countries? The minute the economy looks like it can bumble along and we get to the next federal elections in countries who've done reactionary Keynesianism, these parties will have to go, well, the party's over. We saved you. We got you out of COVID. Now we've got you out of COVID. We need to rebalance the budget. 
And I'll give you listeners a wonderful example. The US economy was doing well until Bill Clinton balanced the budget. Your problems began when you had a balanced budget because at the point of having a balanced budget, the state was not spending on things that the corporate sector don't do and the state wasn't spending to empower people. And when the state doesn't spend to do those things, too many people at the bottom of the economic food chain have no money to spend and consumer spending crashes, which is exactly what Clinton did. Obama was told by a few very bright economists during the GFC to spend twice the amount of money he did and not do austerity. And being that the rest of his cabinet were neoliberal and he was neoliberal, he did what he was conditioned to. And we got 10 years of economic disaster. So I'm out in the radical fringe here of economics. You have to sort of accept that, that the mainstream economists you're potentially going to talk to are all going to say, oh, we've spent so much money, we have to go into austerity. There's no choice. And they'll go, but we don't have a choice. And they'll keep saying, but we don't have a choice. Well, the reality is before 1945, we knew we had choices and we kept using them. Well, what happens, I mean, if like like in the US, for instance, or in other countries when the deficit, you know, even if I guess there's a big difference if the deficit is in the, the dollars of that country, meaning that. Okay, let's yeah, go. Let's let's stop yeah. using the word deficit and go. We should have two words. We should have a word for how many dollars we borrowed from other people, and we should have a word for how many dollars the sovereign currency issuing federal government created, which is its right and its job, and never combine those two numbers. The huge problem we have across the world is the way national accounts are calculated. We combine money that was borrowed by federal government and money that was created by federal government and we lump it together. Mm. And by lumping it together, we get a delusional number. So a huge amount of the US deficit is actually money that was created to pay for things that have made America a better place. That money never has to be counted in any way than just acknowledge we created it by the public sector creating it, the private sector got money, people got money in their pockets, that money made the private economy go around. As long as we manage inflation and don't run out of real resources, there are no problems. You know, the US has had a defence budget running off of this model since the beginning of World War Two. The money is simply put in the accounts of companies who need to be paid. Every year it's brand new money, and yet that gets counted towards the deficit. So it shouldn't be. I mean, what should happen to it then? What are they going to, what do they do with it if they create it, but it's, but they don't put it into the deficit line item? You just have a, a, a line item called money we created. I don't know if that would go over too well politically. No, it won't because people have got 50 years of cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias. Neoliberal economics has, so, you know, here in Australia, we've had economists saying, we can't keep spending money. We're going to cripple the economy. We need to balance the budget. Yeah. Like America, look at the point where Australia has problems economically. It has problems when it has a balanced budget because there's not a government, enough government spending to kickstart the economy and enough spending to get people out of poverty and enough spending to make sure that people are confident to spend. Hmm. The, the real things that are a limiter, are there real resources you can buy in the currency you issue and are you causing inflation? And if you're causing inflation, can you manage it? Manage it? So, World War Two. I think the highest level inflation got to in the U.S. during World War Two was 11%. They got it down to 7% within six months, 3% within a year. Managing inflation is not a problem if you have good economic theory and your economic model is not based on a political ideology. So all we've got to do is, in a sense, use the best of pre-1946 Keynesianism and American model for running the economy during war and everything we've learned from modern monetary theory and except that if we go into austerity now, we make everything worse. If we use our currencies that we can issue to buy real resources to achieve public goods and manage inflation, we can come out of this better and stronger. The real problem is when we get to countries who, you know, their currency is worth nothing and they've got no resources they can buy with it, where they have to do it with borrowing. That's where it gets complicated. So, all right, India can create rupees and it can pay for agricultural things and basic things with rupees. But most companies don't want to take rupees, which means the Indians have to borrow dollars. So part of the responsibility that comes out of this next too, we've heard the UN talking endlessly about we need to make sure that everyone gets vaccines and we absolutely do. But they're talking about this as if it's some sort of hardship. The reality is we're about to get a plant in Melbourne that can make vaccines. 
the US has plants, the UK will have plants, the Germans and French, I think, already have plants, the Belgians have plants. How about these countries who could spend their own money to make these vaccines? Just make them and donate them to the world because it costs them nothing. Oh, because they can just create the money to... to they can create the money to pay for it, growing their private sector. And as long as they manage inflation, there is no problem. And they make the world a better place and they create massive goodwill for Western democracy. Do you think any of them are entertaining this or it's not even on their radar? I think everyone will want to see how little they can get away with. Why do why do the magnanimous thing if you don't have to? Because we still don't have enough people who understand the real problem is real resources and inflation, not spending money. And again, well, how does if you get a rise, what causes it in uh, in your experience? Oh, again, inflation arises when there's more money out than there is stuff. So the classic modern example is Zimbabwe in the early 2000s when there is no food in the markets. And the Zimbabwean government goes, let's just print more money and then hand out that extra money. So overnight, a chicken goes from being worth 10 Zimbabwean dollars to 10 million Zimbabwean dollars. So inflation happens when there is limited stuff and lots of money. So the reason why inflation happened in the US economy during World War II is workers were making stuff for military use, there was less stuff for civilians to purchase and workers were getting paid a lot more money because they were working so many hours and getting paid better. So they were getting more money and there was less stuff to buy. So part of what you have to balance in that is you have to make sure there's a bit more stuff and you have to make sure people have less money to spend. So you get them to invest in bonds and you offer them a higher interest rate for later so they want to save it. You tax them and redistribute it to people who have less money. Uh, There's other things you can do, but they're the simple things. Change what's available, bonds to get people to save and taxation to redistribute. So big thing is to remember that you can deal with inflation in multiple ways as long as you understand what the real cause is. And the real cause is there's a lot of money washing around and there isn't enough stuff for people to spend it on. So the apparent value of that stuff, it goes up. So at the moment with COVID, for example, what was the silliest price you saw there in America for masks last year? You know, at the height of the mask crisis, what were, what were masks costing? A couple of dollars a piece? I guess, yeah, something like that. They're pretty yeah. cheap still. Yeah, and yet, you know, here in Australia, well, we still need to have them available. Uh, they're back to about basically 10 cents a mask. But at their peak, they got to $2. Now, that was inflation. Masks aren't available. People want them, and they have the money to spend. So if there's money to be spent and there's not enough of the product, or there's too much money, which means people are willing to pay more. And that's the potential problem of creating and spending money. But you can always temper it by you know, how you tax things. So this is another thing we need to consider. And we've moved from COVID to economics, which we didn't mean to do, but it's a really important thing is how you tax people determines how much money they've got to spend. So the real purpose of taxation is to get a healthy society and economy, not to get the money back to spend. Yes, you can spend money that you tax back as a government, but that's not its principal aim. If you are a sovereign currency issuer, you can create any money that you need above and beyond taxation. So you don't stop doing good things because you can't tax enough money. And yet what we'll see is as our economies contract when we go into austerity, as we come out of COVID, governments go, well, we have to cut programs because we don't have the tax money. Now, what was one of the first major programs that President Trump cut because there wasn't enough tax income when he came into power and early 2017. He cut the organization that prepares for pandemic, which Republicans, again, I don't understand what's happened in your country that essentially your Republican party has become Trump's party. It now repeats lies a hundred times and says they're true. You know, the fact that he came out yesterday at the CPAC conference and said that he won two presidential elections and the crowd cheered. You, You are dealing with a level of just a new political phenomenon I don't even begin to know where to make sense of. But this will be the problem as we come out of this. In the period where we need to catch kids up at school, in the period where we need to rebuild chunks of our economy, in the period where we know we need to fix the digital divide so that kids don't fall behind during crises, at the time when all those things we know they need to be done And in a sense, there's a hunger from the population. If we go into austerity, they will be the first things that get cut when we get uh, less tax revenue. 
when governments forget they can just create money to make up the difference between tax receipts and what they want to achieve as long as they're buying real resources and managing inflation. Well, with this past year, I would think the federal and the state tax receipts in the U.S. are going to be way lower, you know, because of all the lockdowns and everything. So I don't know how that's going to manifest this year and going forward, but. Well, that could be the original freak out that forces austerity is Mm -hmm. that is, and this is the problem. Like if you are a local state, so, you know, here in South Australia, South Australian government is not a sovereign currency issuer. They can only spend what they have got or what they can get from the federal government, who is a sovereign currency issuer. And this is the problem is economists at the low level who are not in a situation where a government can create currency, are limited to what they've got. And that's where terrible decisions have to be made at local level, which is why it needs to be understood at federal level that tax receipts do not determine what we can spend. The availability of real resources and the need to manage inflation determine what we can spend. I see what you mean. I guess that's why uh, companies and states ask for bailouts, because that's their really only way yes. of uh, getting right. Hmm. Yeah, And bailouts for companies, again, we saw with the GFC, the banks were bailed out. They didn't learn a damn thing. They still behave poorly. And our economic situation is still as precarious now as it was in 2008. They've just come up with new crazy financial instruments. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry we ranged too far into economics, but I guess the two are married, you know, COVID and that. But Yeah, and it is the next problem. So, again, where well, we can't talk about the medical, not being medical people, what we're really talking about is what happens next politically and economically. And what I would say happens next is a lot of the population of the world knows that things need to change, and a lot of politicians won't want it to change because it doesn't fit how they've always functioned, and they don't want to take risks, and most importantly, they don't want to risk their careers, And it will be the diminishment of tax receipts that will convince most governments to go into austerity. And because of austerity, we will not fix most of the things we've learned out of this. And a consequence of this, we'll waste another 10 years not realizing we have economic and political power to transform the world. How's that for a summary? Wow. No, I was going to say that's a good summary. Well, excellent, David. What's the best way for people to find you and learn more from you? You have the Blind Insights podcast. Yep, got the Blind to. Insights podcast, which people can go listen to. I have my own podcast called davidolney.com.au. So David, O-L-N-E-Y, one word, .com.au. Uh, and I end up being a guest on other amazing podcasts like this. So you can find me plenty of ways. But the website is a really good place to start. Okay. Well, great. Thanks again for coming. And uh, I'll have you back again because, like I said, there's uh, there's endless insights that you have. So thank you, Dave. Thank you, Rich. And thank you, listeners. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.